0: Philippians chapter 4, we're continuing our series in the book of Philippians called Gospel Happiness, and we've come to one of the greatest and most glorious sections in the book of Philippians and in all of Scripture. It is a passage that contains a number of verses that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, and God has glorious things for us in his word today. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I read what he said about this passage. He says, there's a sense in which the only right and proper thing to do after reading these verses is to pronounce the benediction and go home. And uh, it's one of those kinds of passages. And uh, glorious truth, and yet God has some things for us here. And so, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Our sermon title is Learning Contentment. Learning Contentment. Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches, his riches, in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word. Puritan pastor by the name of Thomas Watson wrote a book in the year 1653. It's a book called The Art of Divine Contentment. And it is drawn from Philippians chapter 4 verse 11. He says that this verse is a speech worthy to be engraved upon our hearts and written in letters of gold upon the crowns of princes. I have learned in every condition to be content. In other words, he's saying that he is not relating to The circumstances of life with discontentment, however difficult they may be, he has learned the secret of contentment. And what Watson says in his book is that discontentment to the soul is as a disease is to the body. It dulls our spiritual senses. It robs us of enjoyment. It corrodes the comforts of life. That's what discontentment is. Does And Watson, in fact, gives this picture of a sinking ship. Your soul and mine is a, is a ship, and the waves of trouble and trials are all around us in life. And Watson says this, It is not the water outside the ship, but the water that leaks into the ship that drowns it. A contented mind would sail above the waters of outward affliction. But when a leak of discontentment and trouble gets into our heart, then it is disquieted and sinks. And so what he says is we need to do what sailors do and pump water out of the boat and deal with this spiritual leak in our souls that is discontentment. It could be the case for more than a few of you today, that the vessel of your heart and soul has taken on waters of discontentment. And in this passage, God in His great kindness and mercy is pursuing us and addressing us and calling us to contentment. Part of the challenge is that we do not live in a culture that values and promotes contentment. We live in an age of rampant materialism and greed. You see it in all of the advertisements. The entire advertisement industry is based on the idea that we need certain things to be content. You need more. You deserve more. Is the voice all around us? Politicians feed on discontentment among the people. Grumbling and complaining are socially acceptable sins. We live in a world that seems to almost value and cultivate discontentment in our souls. It was a bit different among the ancient philosophers Aristotle, Socrates, Seneca, and the Stoics, what they valued more than anything was this idea of contentment and and the tranquility of rising above our circumstances. This was the ultimate goal for the Greek philosophers. How can we live a life of contentment? Not so much how can we acquire more things, but how can we live a life of contentment? And the way in which many of the Greek philosophers answered that was to say that we should be sufficient in ourselves and that we should be in need of nothing else. Uh, Seneca talked about cultivating emotional detachment. They believed that the way to contentment is to be disconnected. In other words, uh, don't love too much, don't hope too much, don't grieve too much. And you can find traces of all of that in the secular self-help books today and in secular psychology. What's striking is that in our passage, Paul uses the same word that the Stoics did, contentment, but his logic is entirely different. He's basically saying, you know that life of contentment that the philosophers and the Stoics and everyone is searching for? He says, I have found it. He says, I've got it. That contentment, I've learned the secret. Learned, that word is there in verses 11 and 12, learned. Because this is not a virtue that we're born with. It's not a virtue that comes naturally to us, given our sinful hearts. But it is possible to possess. It's possible to learn. And secret, verse 12, because, well, most people have not learned it. And most are not living in the good of this contentment. This entire section is an expression of gratitude from the Apostle Paul for uh, the partnership in the gospel that he enjoys with the church in Philippi. Paul is grateful they have revived their concern for him, their support of him. Their concern is blooming and blossoming like spring flowers. He says it has been revived, and they are partnering with his extra local ministry through giving and through prayer and through friendship. I want to look at a few things. What do we learn from this expression of gratitude and from Paul's example in this passage? There are a a few essential lessons for the Christian to learn that God has for us today. First, contentment in every situation. Contentment in every situation. We've seen this theme of joy and rejoicing run throughout the letter. And here again in verse 10, we see that Paul is not just Rejoicing, and not just rejoicing in the Lord, but he says he is rejoicing in the Lord greatly. His heart is bursting with joy as he writes. In verse 11, he says that although this gift is meaningful, he also wants them to know that he wasn't anxiously waiting for their gift, and he wants them to know that he isn't ultimately dependent upon this gift for his contentment. And so he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This is a remarkable statement. And I found myself in this study of Philippians again and again challenged and reproved by the example of the Apostle Paul. It is just remarkable. He's at a whole nother level. I've called it this sort of gospel craziness. When the gospel is takes root in our hearts, and when we truly become Christ-centered in our affections, in our desires, in our hopes, it creates a certain kind of person, and that is what we see on display again and again in the life of the Apostle Paul. He's writing in prison. He knew what it is to experience hunger and persecution and confinement, and yet, he says, the waters of discontent have not entered the boat of his soul. He is radiating joy. He is radiating tranquility. How is that even possible? How can anyone say, I have learned in whatever situation to be content? I have, I have moved beyond the point of discontentment. To experience a contentment, the secret of contentment. Well, don't misunderstand, because it could easily be misunderstood. This contentment does not mean we are indifferent to our circumstances. It does not mean that we are cold and unfeeling. What it does mean is that we're not a slave to our circumstances. Circumstances do not master you. Circumstances do not rule you. We are mastered and ruled by Christ. We are mastered and ruled by our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessings of being found in Him. And if you feel, because I know for some of you there may be a lot of water in the boat of your soul, if you feel like this contentment is so far beyond you, if you feel like it's not possible for you remember that Paul says this quality is something he learned he he had been in the schoolroom of Christ through life's experiences and part of what God is doing in the present circumstances he has in your life including the most difficult parts of it part of what he's doing is placing you in the school of contentment he is teaching you that you might learn and grow in this grace of contentment. And there are two things that Paul learned. Verse 12, how to be brought low, including poverty and need, he says. And he has learned how to abound, having abundance, having plenty. So this Christian contentment is one that applies, we are told, verse 12, in any and every Circumstance. I have prayed for us as a church in light of this passage because there are some of you who have been brought low by life circumstances, and there are others of you who are currently abounding in life circumstances. I think the reality is that most of us experience various areas of our lives in which we are both being brought low and abounding, so that. We should not view ourselves entirely in being in one category or the other. But the Christian, the Christian knows how to be brought low. You lose possessions. If you lose your freedoms. If finances are tight. If your reputation is diminished and damaged. If you are mistreated by others. When things fall apart, when you have a bad day or a bad week or a bad year, the Christian says, when I am brought low, I I know how to do this. I know how to be content in the midst of being brought low. It is an opportunity to participate in the sufferings of Christ. It is an opportunity for me to rely upon the power of God, to remember His goodness, to remember His grace, to remember what I deserve And how good God has been to me. I did pull that Thomas Watson book off the shelf this week, The Art of Divine Contentment. And I saw this sentence again where he says, let us compare our condition with what we deserve. If we do not have what we desire, we have more than we deserve. And that's the truth of it. Because we deserve the judgment of a holy God for our many sins, every one of us. But God has not dealt with us according to our deservings, but according to the riches of His grace in Christ. So that it is is a fact of the matter that everyone can say they are doing better than they deserve. We have so much more than what we deserve in light of our many sins. God has been gracious to us. That gospel application is part of what it means to know how to be brought low. Because you realize that you deserve to be brought much lower. You deserve to bear a much greater burden. But it is one you will never bear because it was placed upon Christ. Who died and suffered in our place. He was brought low that we might experience the riches of the grace of God now and forever. He was brought low that we might know how to be brought low. And experience contentment in the midst of it because we have a hope that lives on even in the midst of the darkest valley. He says, I know how to be brought low, and not only that, the Christian also knows how to abound and prosper, Uh, which is the test we would all prefer, right? God, give me the test of prosperity. Give me the test of abundance. I'm ready for that one. It's actually the more challenging lesson to learn. Another one of the Puritans, it was Thomas Brooks, he said, Adversity has slain her thousand, but prosperity her ten thousand. That's prosperity, that's abounding, taking people out. Many are those who do not know how to abound for the glory of Christ and experience contentment in the midst of it. Do you know how to abound? Do you realize that compared to most, we are surrounded by luxury? The Christian says, when I abound, I will be grateful. When I abound, I will not set my heart on money and possessions. I'm going to be willing to part with it all in God's timing. When I abound, I'm going to be generous toward others and live that kind of life. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to be content in need and I know how to abound and to be content even in the midst of having plenty. And here's here's the really, really good news. It's there in verse 13. Paul says he's able to do this through Christ who constantly strengthens him. I can do all things, and I just love the confidence of this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, all things, this is, uh, I have a a book on my shelf that's like the most misunderstood verses in Scripture, and it just has a chapter dealing with each one. This verse makes that book uh, because it is greatly misunderstood. The all things uh, is governed by context. So Paul is not talking about flying or sailing around the world or winning the Super Bowl or any of these kinds of things. All things means all that God has called us to experience and to endure and to accomplish. Paul's saying, I can do all of this, all of what I'm talking about through Christ. By his activity in me, by his power at work in me, I am able to be content. Notice that comes by whose power? By God's. Christ is the one who is strengthening us. This is not about our power, thank God. Because we are, every one of us, children of weakness in ourselves, and we encounter our weakness on a daily basis. When people sin against us, when we are sick, when our future is unknown, when unexpected financial expenses come up, these situations expose our weakness and our frailty our inability to help ourselves. But it is precisely when we are weak that the power of Christ strengthens us. And Christian, we need to hear this today in our weakness. There is power in Christ to strengthen you with contentment in your present circumstances. I'm not talking about anyone else's circumstances. I'm not talking about your future circumstances, what may or may not happen. I'm saying your present situation, there is power in the Lord Jesus Christ to strengthen you with contentment in the midst of it all. The issue is not your power at all. The question is whether Christ is powerful enough to sustain you and to help you. Discouragement And defeatism is a lie about the power of Christ. There is grace for you today. There is strength for you today, grace for every storm, and we ought to want to see more of this kind of holy confidence in Christians today. Not self-confidence, but Christ-confidence, <laughs> confidence that he is able, that he has power, that he is strengthening us for contentment in the situation that he has placed us in. A confidence that's able to say, there's something of a humility in this, yes, but there's something a it's a its a Strong humility. It's anchored to Christ. I've learned it. I've learned to be content in every circumstance. And Christ Himself is strengthening me to honor Him in every situation. Contentment in every circumstance is the first lesson that we learn. Second, gratitude for every gift. Gratitude for every gift. Paul returns to this theme of gratitude in verse 14. First, he thanks God for their partnership and friendship in general. He uses this language, you see it partnership, sharing, giving, and receiving. Uh, They, as a church, have partnered with his broader mission to plant and mature churches. And they have cared about him. And they have not simply looked to themselves, but to the broader mission. And this is God's vision for extra local partnership in every church. What did the church in Philippi do? Continuing in partnership even through trials, valuing the relational history of partnership, being willing to partner well beyond what other churches do, is one of the things Paul points out. Eager to meet specific needs as they arise in partnership. Joyfully participating in in giving and receiving uh, the the riches of that kind of partnership. And this is a reminder of the gift we have in our partnership with Sovereign Grace Churches. And the reason that every church should enter into this kind of broader partnership and thank God for that partnership is because this is what we see in Scripture. Scripture. And we as a church, and I thank God for it often, we as a church are so much stronger because of our partnership in the gospel with churches throughout Sovereign Grace. Last week, Andy Farmer taught a group of men training for pastoral ministry at our partner church in Ethiopia. And Josh Pinnell, who leads that school, emailed this weekend, he emailed our pastors and said, it is almost impossible for him to express the degree of support that they have felt from Covenant Fellowship Church. And he said that over the past two years, Covenant Fellowship has repeatedly expressed our love and partnership, and that because of our church, the next generation of East African pastors are being trained and equipped for gospel ministry. And so he said, thank you, and he asked to please thank the church. Dave Taylor also texted me this weekend, this is just this weekend. (laughs) He's in Liberia and he sent a picture of books that we recently sent that are serving and equipping those in Liberia. And he said, covenant fellowship continues to make such an incredible investment. Thank you. That's partnership. That's partnership and we get to be a part of it. The joy, the blessing, the gift of partnership. That's part of what Paul is thanking God for and what we ought to thank God for as well. Now, a second and related point of gratitude, more specifically, that we see in this passage is their financial giving. He is is thanking them. In fact, it's much of the reason that this letter was, was written. He certainly updates them on his circumstances and gives some instruction and reminds them of the gospel that we believe. But part of the goal of this letter, in large part, is to express his gratitude. It's the occasion on which he wrote this letter. He has received them for the gift that they sent by Epaphroditus while he is in prison. And in expressing his gratitude here, he encourages them with several motivations for continued generous giving. And I want to just do the same for us by highlighting a few of these motivations. First, in verse 17, he is making the point that giving benefits the giver. I wonder if you've ever thought about this. The idea that giving benefits the one who gives. Any giving to the mission of the church and the advance of the gospel will result in permanent gain and eternal rewards for the giver. Giving benefits the giver. Verse 17 refers to the fruit that increases to your credit, uh, to your your benefit, your advantage, your gain. In other words, Paul was more pleased by what they would gain in giving than what he gains in receiving. He is excited about the blessing that will come their way as they give. What are the, well, what blessings come your way? Contentment, your heart will be set free from greed, your faith will be exercised. And perhaps most of all, we will be able to participate in the advance of the gospel as we give. We play a part in what God is doing as the gospel is spreading. Giving is in the best interest of those who give. We need to always remember that when we approach this topic of giving. Second, another motivation related to giving, verse 18 makes clear that our giving pleases God. That language there, sacrificial worship, fragrant offering, that has in view the Old Testament sacrifices, especially the burnt offering where the offering is consumed. We no longer offer animal sacrifices, but we do follow the principle of costly and sacrificial giving as an expression of devotion to God. Whenever we give, this is how we should think about it. Giving, financial gifts are given first and foremost to God as an act of worship. (coughs) And God is pleased as we reflect His generosity. That's what giving is. It's a reflection of the God who is generous because God has been so generous to us in Christ. He gave His Son for us. He is the generous king who provides us with all that we need and calls us to then be a generous people who display the difference that the gospel has made in our lives. It's all a part of this gratitude. We learn from Paul to have this kind of gratitude for every gift. And then third and last point is, so contentment in every situation, gratitude for every gift, Third lesson that we learn from Paul's example is trust that God supplies every need. Trust that God supplies every need. And this third point is both a, a secret to contentment and it's in fact another additional motivation to sacrificial and generous giving. Verse 19, this is one of those verses that the Christian will want to be familiar with and to love and to treasure. It focuses on the Lord as provider. It focuses on the Lord's personal care in supplying all our needs. And my God, it says, will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God is a generous provider. It is part of His character to provide for those He has made. The God who gave his son for our salvation, who provided the forgiveness of sins, the God who has addressed our greatest need, continues to supply every need we have. Every need we have. Paul knew from his own experience how God meets needs. When he says, it's a striking phrase there, my God, and my God will supply. I am sure that pronoun, my reflects his own experience of the gracious provision of God, caring for all his needs. That's what the Christian can say. See how my God has so generously provided for all my needs. And he wants them to know that whatever material need is created through their generosity to him, that God is eager to supply. God will return to you abundantly more than you have given. You see, we often wonder, and this is what so often keeps us from greater generosity, we wonder what will happen as we give generously. What if there are unexpected needs? Uh, What if the economy turns worse? Well, verse 19 is exactly what we need, and sometimes I'm afraid we read this verse as if it says, some needs. My God will supply some needs of yours. But that's not what it says at all. God's promise is for every need. All that we need to live for Christ will be richly supplied by God. That means, Christian, you can trust Him. You can trust Him today and His provision. God is generous toward those who are generous. And as we give, it's as we heard earlier, 2 Corinthians 9, God is able to make all grace abound to you. You will be enriched in every way. My God will supply every need of yours. Every need, so every need in context there does include material provision, but it in fact points to the much greater need of every one of us, and that is the need to know Jesus. Verse 19 says that our needs are being supplied, and what a phrase, according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The riches of the glory of God will satisfy us completely. And the main way that God supplies our needs, the main way that God teaches us Contentment is by meeting our greatest need and by giving us himself, by giving us the love of God, by giving us the presence of God, and by doing it now and forever. This, friends, is the great secret of contentment, rejoicing in the Lord, knowing Christ, being found in him, being satisfied in the riches and the glory of of the love of God in Christ Jesus. We have Christ who can never be taken from us. And because we have him and the riches of the glory of God in Christ, we have more than enough to be content. Here is the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. This weekend, this weekend, Tim Keller went to be with the Lord, and uh, I spent Friday evening talking with Megan, my wife, and she pulled a Keller book off the shelf. We were reading to each other through tears and reflecting on what, what the life and ministry of Tim Keller has meant to us. He's gotten, he more than any other author, I believe, has ministered deeply Uh, To us, his voice is one of the main ones that got us through uh, our our daughter's battle with cancer, and uh, and so this he 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 means a lot to us. If you don't know, Keller is a, a pastor, an author, an evangelist. He's a spiritual giant in our century. Someone said he's a he's a once in a century kind of man, and it's absolutely right, and we have benefited so much from His humility and His large-heartedness, His love for Christ, His intellect, His, his apologetics, his, his love for the lost, His Bible teaching that, that unfolds the beauty of the truth so richly, and we have so much more to learn from him, and thank God that he has given us the gift of books. You, you should consider making this summer a time to read a book or two of his uh, or to listen to, to his sermons, Timothy Keller. Yesterday, I reread his chapter on Philippians 4 in his book on suffering, walking with God through pain and suffering, and he talks about Paul's statement in verse 11 this life of contentment and he does say that you know for the stoics and the philosophers the the problem for them is that we love things that we aren't in control of and so they say just don't love anything other than your own own virtue and what keller points out the problem he says is that even your your virtue is not under your control we are too frail we we disappoint ourselves i wanted to read to you what he what he says uh in in his book on suffering on Philippians 4. He says, Augustine rejected the Stoics' approach to contentment as untenable. He argued instead that only love of the immutable can bring tranquility. Only love of the immutable can bring tranquility. The immutable is that which cannot change. Your virtue can and will change, as will your career your family, your fortunes. The reason we don't have peace is because we are loving, mutable things, things that circumstances can take away from us. But there is one thing that is immutable. It is God, His presence and His love. The only love that won't disappoint you is one that can't change, that can't be lost, that is not based on the ups and downs of life or on how well you live. It is something that not, it is something that not even death can take away from you. God's love is the only thing like that. Not only can your poor performance not block it, but even the worst possible circumstance in this life, sudden death, can only give you more of it. What is so certain and solid that even death can't make the slightest dent in it but only enhance it? The love and presence of God, the beauty of God, the face of God. And so it is no surprise that as Keller gathered with family on his deathbed and his wife Kathy kissed him on the forehead... He expressed a desire and a readiness to go home to be with Jesus. His son shared that among his last words were were this, he said to his family, there is no downside for me leaving, none in the slightest. That's contentment. To love Christ, to treasure Christ, who cannot be taken from us. I have learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. I want to invite the band to return and I want each one of us to reflect upon our own lives and to consider, have you learned the secret? Have you learned the secret of contentment? What we see in Paul, what we have seen in Tim Keller, that's the Christian position. To say, my joy does not rise and fall with circumstances. Why? For I have the love of God. I have the presence of God, the beauty of God, the face of God. We have, according to the text, God's riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And we know that he is enough to satisfy us completely. And so it's no wonder that verse 20 is this glorious explosion of praise. And I want to say if praise came forth from prison and suffering, that same praise ought to come forth from our hearts today. Verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And when the church, when the church says amen, that's the exclamation point of praise. When the church shouts amen, The church is declaring, God, let it be. God, your word is true. When the church shouts amen, it is a faith-filled declaration that all of God's promises are true, that his provision is glorious, that his praise is eternal, that in his presence we are fully satisfied. To this God, our God and Father, my God, who supplies every need, To God be glory now and forever. Amen. Let's stand and sing to the Lord.